You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Woolos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Father Paul explains that Genesis chapter 13 provides the lexicon for the rest of the story. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan while Lot dwelt among the cities of the valley and moved his tent again shepherd this as far as Sodom. Okay, so this is connected to the previous 12.8 where Abram pitched his tent and also at the end of the chapter here in 18 we hear that Abram pitched his tent again, the shepherds. And then we have in verse 13 now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. They are Raim from Raha, the evil of chapter 8. And then Hataim, sinners, very much against the Lord. And that I think it is here, I believe, in preparation for the blunder of Abram as Abraham in Genesis 18, where Abraham wanted to show off and consider himself more righteous than God. That's what I believe the function of this extra comment. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. And that, as I said in my book, is obviously shepherd lingo. Okay, in other words, wherever you are, and this applies only to the shepherd, everything his eyes can see around him is a land of pasture for him. And that's why he, the shepherd, can go throughout the Syrian desert without possessing the Syrian desert. You see, that's the difference between the shepherd lingo and the kingly lingo. The kingly lingo has to have a GPS satellite and so on to show you exactly your property. I mean, notice a land you cannot see except on the map. The USA, you cannot see it, which means it's artificial, as I said in my book. But that is shepherd lingo. Abraham could not see Hebron from Bethel, let alone the Euphrates. But that's the idea. That's why in the scripture, the Eretz, the land you use, is always God's. Remember that, son. The earth and all those who live on it. So, Again, I need to invite my North American hearers to transport themselves 
into the Syrian desert of the past, because now it may be filled with cities in Syria and Iraq. But in those times, it was not so. All the earth is yours. And then 15, for all the land which you see from where you are, I will give to you and again your descendants, which is the Zerah forever, as in the case of Noah. The entire earth was given to his descendants, which are all the nations. Here we have the same gift given to the Zerah of Abraham. And then another curveball. I mean, I tell you, these authors must have been baseball managers. They are amazing. I shall make your zera as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your descendants also can be counted. And you have all guessed, or you should have guessed, that the afar is a tricky word because it reminds us of the statement of God that when he said to Adam, you are dust from dust. It's amazing. It's a lot, plenty. But it's practically the other facet of the nothing. It's exactly like the buildings. You imagine here one cannot, but Remember, sadly, but still, I mean, it's not the only example of history. You had it before. Time and again, you had an earthquake even in San Francisco. But 9-11 is always there to tell us that the earth is made ultimately of afar. Very powerful. They could be as many as you can imagine so long as you accept it as a blessing from me. If you become wicked and sinner, then it's going to be against you, and this is where Deuteronomy shows that it's an important book. It's the same source that is the source of the blessing, which is also the source of the curse. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. And here we have a movement to Hithalek in this land, in the length and the breadth. For I will give it to you. Notice, the gift of God always remains a gift. It is never used. So everything you have, you have to put always. It is the gift of God to me. And you put gift in capital letters and from God and to me in much smaller letters. It's the action of the gift, the given. And this Hithalek, notice earlier we had Halak, now we have Hithalek, which is a preparation of walking according to God's statutes. And it is in this sense that Abraham is called to be like Noah, but again, both falter. So, we can hear the progression, but again, you have to have it in the original. Take RSV here, has halak, has walk, and then hithalak, has walk. So, an English hearer will never notice the difference. But, hearing it in Hebrew, 
it shows us the difference. So Abram moved his tent, very interesting, and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre. And I spoke last time about the movement from the oaks at Moreh in conjunction with Bethel. Here we have something positive. Hebron is the heritage of Abraham that becomes the heritage of Caleb. We talked about that. But again, there he built an altar to the Lord. I believe that the repetition is very important. He built an altar in Bethel, but he made the mistake of building an altar to the Lord at Hebron. And I believe that this is pitching the seed to prepare for what Jacob, that is Israel, will do later in Genesis 33.20. There he, which is Jacob, Israel, erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel to the God of Israel or El, the God of Israel. But the key verb there is Nasab, from which we have Maseba, these erections for the gods. So we see the movement there. And ultimately, every small building is a mini erection in the mind of the human being, meaning that he, the human being, gives importance to God. Remember David later, who said, how could God be in just a tent? Ah, I want to build a building for him. But we'll get to that. But for the time being, that's how I see it. We have a movement from Seth, where he called upon the name of the Lord. That's it, period. Then you have Abram that does the same in conjunction with an altar. Altar, if you like, is a small shrine. But later, Jacob, Israel, will build also an altar, but the verb is different. Nasab in Arabic, I mean, though the people, in Tasab, I mean, to stand erect and high, solid, okay, like a colon. And then if you know Hebrew, you will see that it's the same root with the verb Maseba. You remember Matsebot and Ashtarot and so on. So we have in chapter 13, it's really, I was very impressed when I put extra effort in it to prepare this podcast. You have, if you like, the vocabulary, the lexicon of the rest of the story already in this chapter. And as a footnote, Lot, I mean, you don't know it now, but in a few chapters, you will notice that he is, through his daughters, the progenitor of Ammon and Moab, the next-door neighbor nations of Israel and Judah. And so. so it's really very interesting. We have already the seed of the good and the bad 
and no less in the use of that famous afar. You cannot count the dust of the earth, but dust remains dust. In 1307, the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land, and the author felt the need to say this back in chapter 12, in verse 6, the Canaanite was then in the land. Why is the text reminding us the Canaanite was in the land, the Canaanite was in the land? What is the author trying to convey by repeating this? It's a way to tell you that, as I say in my book, the motto of the Israelis, that it's a land with no people that was given to a people with no land. This is a fallacy. You're eliminating the people who were already there. And this will become very important, and your question is apropos, in the book of Joshua, where the people entered. You get the impression that all the nations were eliminated, but actually God kept a few to test Israel. And the test is how they will deal not so much with God. Remember, John, you cannot love God whom you don't see if you don't love the name, how they deal with the neighbors. And since you asked the question, let me go further, and I detail this in my commentary on Joshua and also in my Rise of Scripture, that you have two indicators for that in the book of Joshua, where, you know, you had the Gibeonites that were already there, and they fooled Joshua, they lied. But he made a covenant with them, and once you make the covenant, that's it. And it will appear again later in the case when Samuel had to correct someone who misbehaved towards the Gibeonites. Can you imagine after so many chapters, because of this covenant and the oath, you have people already in the list of the nations. You didn't have only Hamites and Semites living together. But you had also Japhetites coming from far away, and they would enter into the blessing of the tents of Shem. The other example in Joshua is towards the end, which I stress in both my commentary and my rise of scripture, which is in my eyes extremely important, that most of the time the author says, and this nation one of the nations, lived with Israelites. In other words, was allowed to live with the Israelites. It is as though under their protection and ages. But in other examples, we have at least two that I mention in the book. The text fools you by saying the Israelites lived with that nation. It's amazing. And people tell me, but it's the same. For your camera, it is the same. For your GPS satellite, it is the same. But the text is not saying the same thing. The trouble is that the nations have kings and you should Teach them to be like you without a king. But how can you do that when you become like the other nations? 
it seems as though we're comparing the ability of the nations to get along and the inability of the brothers to get along, and that somehow this exposes this problem for Abram and Lot, but also for Abram later on in the story as Abraham, as you said, when he's more egotistical or he shows himself before God. Definitely, that is the intention. From the doubling, it's by comparing 13.7 with the mention earlier of only the Canaanites. That's how I would hear it, because, again, how many times I keep repeating, you have to hear a statement within its context. I mean, notice, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle. Then Abram said to Lot, that there be no strife between me and you. So I jumped from 7a to 8. No one honestly can say, unless one knows that it's already in the Bible, the so-called additional 7b, at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. And how many times I repeated in my commentaries that any so-called addition, remember the old scholarship, it was added later and so on, and it has no value. And no, I discovered slowly on that these additional statements that you would not miss if I don't read them, and you remember, in my classroom, I used to do that often in my class. I would read myself the text, and you are all listening, and then I tell you, look, I took away that part. You didn't miss it. Slowly on, I discovered that these are to be given importance. And it reminds me of the text of Paul, how we give more importance to the members of the body that are linked to shame. We make them look good if we have a scar and so on and so forth. And then you link it with the TV show. You know how they ask you how tall and so on. The better. Did he have any markers so that we can follow? So these are powerful markers. And as I said, it doesn't matter if one doesn't see it immediately. But I agree totally with you that that is its function. Especially, you know, notice the repetition. You have Reeb, Meribah, and then you have two nations living together. Okay, buddies. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.